0: I'm super excited about today's episode. Richard Mulholland is the CEO of TalkDraw and the co-founder of Missing Link, the biggest presentation firm in the country. Rich also used to be the roadie for Def Leppard and Iron Maiden before pivoting the lessons he learned in rock and roll bands performing on stage to teaching corporate leaders how to present in public to large audiences. This is The Healthy Business Show. I'm your host, Fred Rode. And in this episode, I'm asking fellow entrepreneur and fellow dude with a dodgy haircut, Mr. Richard Mulholland, about presenting in public, conveying a message to an audience, structuring presentations, and hopefully dispelling some myths about the art of public speaking. Rich, welcome to The Healthy Business
1: Show. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Rich, you've spoken around the world. You're recognized as one of South Africa's uh, best public speakers in the country. Do you still get nervous before presenting to an audience in public?
1: No, <laughs> I don't. <laughs> uh, I get nervous uh, when I'm preparing uh, before, I, actually nervous is the wrong word, right? And I think there's a standard narrative around, uh, yes, we get nervous. Uh, not nervous, I get prepared because I care. Uh, I really, really, I want to do well. The idea of standing up in front of a group of people and speaking doesn't, doesn't scare me at all. The idea of standing there and speaking for an hour and just being a a joke or a you know somebody who got a cheap laugh and not making a meaningful impact uh petrifies me so the worry comes in the the time before when i'm preparing when i'm trying to figure out what to say my anxiety uh ends when i finally hit save on the presentation When I've kind of gone through everything, I'm like, okay, cool, cool. Then I'm just going to get into the mode. The, The delivery part isn't the bit I'm nervous about. The preparing what I have to say is the bit that I get really nervous about. Like, did I write this well? Not did I deliver it well. Because I'm pretty confident that I can, and in fact, I really enjoy that aspect of it. So I look sure. forward to it, but it's the preparation I get nervous for. I, I cannot explain to you the amount of times I go through the self doubt, like, Oh, this is wrong. This isn't going to work for them. I'd rather take out this or put in this. And, and there's only so many times you can change something until you, you feel you've locked it down.
0: One of the things that I've noticed also working with a, a lot of business leaders and corporate managers is that even the most confident people in, in a public setting talking amongst each other, they also get nervous when faced with the task of speaking in public.
1: What do you think at the heart of the psychology of that? I've got to separate the act of the nervous of speaking. Once you speak a lot, it's actually not nerve-wracking. There are two things, the actual act of putting yourself out there, right? So you're standing on a stage and you're saying something that people may or may not agree with. And also there is an expectation that most people are bad at it. So there is that nerve around, oh, I've got to stand up and deliver, But, uh, you know, presentations are typically bad and I want to be good. And you're also putting yourself, you're like naked in front of your peers. So I can understand why that would be nerve wracking. But I also think that if you're the CEO of a company and you're standing up and you're delivering a speech to your leadership team, you're not nervous because they might not like you or enjoy the presentation. You're nervous because if you deliver this wrong, right? if you do not get your point across well, and remember, a presentations job is to deliver a message to achieve a result. That's it we caring about the result. If you mess this up, this could be your one chance to change the fate of the organization in front of you. And that's big. I get nervous about the preparation, but I still get nervous. And I'm nervous because I care. If you're not nervous, I think it almost means that yeah, you should be worried. My boss, I remember um, years ago, my boss, I was working on a an event called the Harlem Globetrotters. And I was a lighting designer. I remember those
0: guys. Yeah, they're amazing. They're basketball players, right? Yeah, Yeah. and they
1: do all these tricks, and they're still around. And uh, I was hired by a South African brand who sponsored the Harlem Globetrotters coming here to do a light show. So the entire audience was just watching this light show. Uh, And at the end of the light show, the Globetrotters walked on, and it was a two-minute light show. And I did this show, and it was probably the best work I ever did in lighting. Like, it was my best. I was, uh, I can remember some of the cues. I can remember what I did in the music. Everything was phenomenal. I was positioned inside the audience. People could see me operating. I finished, I went to the Crescendo. They ran out and I vomited all over the lighting desk. (laughs) I literally threw up all over the lighting desk. No, man. Yeah, it was terrible. And I went to my boss the next day and I said, Offer, I think you need to take me off the road. And I said, he said, why? And I said, well, because like, I just don't have the, I just get too nervous. And then he said to me, he said, when you stop caring, When you stop getting nervous, that's when I'm going to take you off the desk. Uh, As long as you have nervous when you stand up and and operate lights for these shows, then I think you're in the right place. And I've always remembered that. Like the moment you stop caring, then worry. Uh, The moment you're not nervous, then worry because then you don't care enough anymore.
0: Rich, why is it important for an entrepreneur to learn the skills? I mean, can you get away with not learning to speak in public as an entrepreneur?
1: Okay, so let's separate public. Let's first of all separate okay, well, public well, speaking public, from private me, speaking.
0: Let me define it then, maybe. Public as in, you know, in the boardroom setting or to a larger audience,
1: to an audience. All right. So speaking to an audience, to me, the difference between a leader and a manager is your ability to communicate. If you want to lead your people internally, you've got to speak. Right. But if you want to sell an idea – you know, my son, he wants to be an astrophysicist. He's big into math and science. And when he was younger, and you saw him speak at my wedding, hmm. and he's a confident young man, and he delivered a great speech, and I was blown away. And, he was uh, amazing. I, and I've always said, like, you've got to keep nurturing that. And I said to him recently, I said, "Kelly, you've not been pushing your public speaking. And he said, but, Dad, I want to be an astrophysicist. so I don't need to be a public speaker. I said, no, but remember – uh, you know, who are your heroes? And he was like Neil deGrasse Tyson and Richard Dawkins, all of these other kind of people. And I said, I'm great. I said, but you need to understand, why do you like them? When did you see them? I saw, I saw them speak. And I said, to him, you've got to understand that an astrophysicist that can communicate will always be better off than an astrophysicist who can't. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, when, when you're dealing with actuaries or people uh, anywhere, it's the ones who can communicate their ideas that win. And as an entrepreneur, as a business leader, you've got all of these ideas in your head. But if you can't communicate them to your team, they can't execute on them. If you can't communicate them to your customers, they, they won't buy them from you. So you've got to solve that problem. And for me, it's, it's, it's so easy. Don't wait until you're in front of that big meeting, in front of that big client. You can practice in public. You've got a free audience. Sure. You can turn around there and you can take your local, your team, and you can stand up and deliver and, and speak to them every week or every month and share your ideas and share your visions. So that by the time you have that big meeting that you've got to do, you're prepared.
0: Yeah, it goes back to your point of the aim of a presentation is to ch- achieve that result. So I mean speaking of communication just as an aside and, and somewhat related, I can't help notice, Rich, that you're building your own brand on YouTube and via social media and you, you're conveying your messages quite pervasively across all these channels. Can you talk a little bit about the strategy behind that and what what you're trying to achieve?
1: There's a few reasons. It forces me into creating new content. So quite often that you'll see if I develop a new keynote, if you've been following some of my videos, uh, you'll see where these came from. So I think of these ideas, I put it out there, and I see if it resonates. I see the feedback I get, and it's a great sandpit for me to try new things out Mm -hmm. and to do. And the feedback is, you know, it's a long, slow process trying to build any kind of traction online. But it's just like having a bond is a forced saving Right, having, having this reliance on having to put new material out there. Is it kind of a forced investment in, in your future content and your future ideas? And you put some out there and you're like, oh, that wasn't great. And, you know, a friend will send you a message and say, I disagree with this because of that. And that just helps inform how you eventually do it when you're standing in front of a stage and, 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 making it count. I also think that we need to understand that audience, we're all trying to influence audience and you're trying to influence audience when they're standing in front of you, but also when they're driving in their cars or when they're, you know, sitting behind their desk watching a video. And if you're on this pursuit to activate audiences, uh, you should you shouldn't limit that to one medium. I mm. think it's worthwhile uh, trying to get your message across. If you believe in your ideas strongly enough, then why would you limit them to one legacy medium that you had built your career on? If you believe in your, your ideas strong enough, then you should want them to survive in every platform they can. And again, the more you say it, the better you get at doing yeah, it. Yeah, you're practicing all the time, right? Practicing in public. So that then when it does matter, when you do find yourself on that stage in front of those investors where you've got to deliver that message, it's, it's fine. I, I was talking about that free solo and this Alex Honard guy, and he mm. talked about how he climbed El Capitan. right? He, he's doing some things that are so scary. He said, the job is not to, to remove the fear of doing them. The job is to do it so many times that you understand it so easily that you're no longer scared of it. Mm. Right? Like I've done this move 50 times perfectly I'm not scared of it The consequences are That if I fail I die mm. But you know I don't think about that Because I know That I can do that move And that's why I feel that people Should be more intentional About how they communicate mm. You know practicing things Have these little Microscripts in your brain mm. and, and you know If you learn something new Say oh I want to I Start saying that If I read something and I have an idea around it. I try to drop it into conversations for mm-hmm. the next, you know, two weeks until it feels like, oh, yeah, I've got the words working right. Mm-hmm. And then I'll do a video and then I'll do it on a podcast and then sure. I'll do it on a
0: talk. It's kind of that concept of keeping the edge close. And it's actually
1: dangerous not to keep
0: the edge close. I mean, it reminds me of the story of the guys who are flying across Alaska. And, uh, you know, these pilots had one of the highest death rates in the world. And the reason was because they got so good at flying and they knew the parameters of when they should fly so well that they started flouting those, those edges and they just got comfortable and they just realized, you know, we can actually do this. And if the wind's a little bit stronger and it just, it feels almost like if you take away that edge, then, uh, it becomes quite a dangerous thing for your career. I mean, those pilots effectively died die as a result of not knowing where the edge was anymore.
1: And that's why guys like, Alex Honard will keep climbing different mountains exactly. to refine that edge. And that's why I have to keep creating new content. Sure. Because if you get so comfortable delivering this stuff, then you just start and it becomes, you know, eh, hmm. just another day at the office. Sure. And this is, again, that reality check on being nervous. If you find yourself standing up there and you're not nervous anymore, then I think you've let the edge, you know. Sure. Uh, and, sure. Uh, keep the edge close. Keep the I edge like close,
0: it, Yeah. yeah. So there's this natural impulse then to, to, to think of a successful public speaker or, or a speaker to an audience as somebody who's loud, brash, confident, charismatic. And that's what you kind of got to be in order to be successful in delivering that message in order to achieve that, that aim. But is that true? And maybe speak to some of the the different styles of delivery that that you're aware of uh, in your experience.
1: Okay, so what's definitely not true is this loud, brash, funny thing, anything sure. like that. Yeah. Malcolm Gladwell is not loud, brash, funny things. He's witty. He's got some witticisms. He's not. You he wouldn't be any of those things. Sure. But he's entertaining. When you're a public speaker, you actually always have this double mandate. You have to deliver the message to achieve the result. That's part A. And you have to entertain. You're the hired help. So you can't be completely just about the message. You know, that's the slot for the academic who arrives. So that's the first part is to separate the paid public speaker persona. Sure. You've just got to find out the way that you can deliver your story in a way that is interesting. The opposite of boring isn't crazy fun. The opposite of boring is memorable. So if you can deliver something in a, in a really truly memorable way that people engage with, mm. then you do well. So for Gladwell, that is rich storytelling. right? He sucks you in with that. That's amazing. You need to be memorable. You need to be able to deliver a message in such a way that people care. And I believe that has a lot less to do with how you deliver your message and a lot more to do with how you structure it in the first place. Mm. Because you write a good talk before you deliver one, right? Gladwell is not a great speaker. He's a great writer, right? He's a best-selling writer, And Gladwell, people always say to me, oh, Gladwell doesn't have slides. Yes, but he has literally five pages of printed notes in his hand in every speech he delivers. You've got to be the best version of yourself. You've got to be you but larger. And that doesn't mean bigger. It just means like fuller version of who you are, the version of you that you fantasize about being. You've got to be willing to try and be that person when you're on stage. And if that is a person who just sucks an audience in, who's willing, because you know what? It's easy to speak loud, but can you be brave enough to whisper? Can you be brave enough to hold an uncomfortable silence? I see what you did there. I'm glad. But that to me is what it's at, right? Is you've got to find that version of you and to say, okay, well, I've got to be this version of me, me at my best. And that is not brash and loud unless you're brash and loud.
0: There's so much to actually touch upon there and uh, some really valuable insights. And I, I just want to touch upon the part about being memorable in terms of the gold standard of public speaking is TED, right? And, and I know you have coached TED speakers behind the scenes. And, um, I mean, you look at the portfolio of talks that is on the TED website. They've got such an extraordinary ability to create such a consistent level of excellence and. You know, it's this consistency of that memorable content over such a diverse range of styles and, and approaches to public speaking. How do they do that? I mean, is there some kind of framework that they deploy or can you give us a bit of an insight into the behind the scenes, lifting the bonnet behind Ted?
1: Yes. So, but you don't even have to be behind Ted. You just have to, to look at it from the outside. They just don't tolerate anything less, right? It's that simple. It's that business tolerates bad presentation. And the fundamental difference between coaching a TED speaker and coaching, you know, leading up to a big corporate conference is you're lucky if you get, you know, if they'll schedule half an hour uh, with you at a big corporate conference. At TED, you don't get that choice. You will arrive for every single one of your sessions And you will sit there and you will work with a coach, a coach who may have spoken less than you, but they understand what it is. And if they don't think you're good, they will work with you until you are. And if they still don't think you're good enough, you don't make the stage because they do not tolerate mediocrity when it comes to delivery because it's their business. But also they do it for you because this is your opportunity to stand up in front of people and make an impact. Now, that's what TED does well that everybody else in the world doesn't do. But then they create a framework. They create a constraint. You know, they know that it's easy to ramble when you're given an hour, so they give you 18 minutes. Or now a lot of them talks are even shorter, 10 minutes. We work with the TED fellows, and there they had four minutes. Right, so you've got to explain your life's work in four minutes. We always say to people, don't write out the very words of your script. Sure. But when you're a TED fellow and you're given four minutes, write it out first. You can deviate from it slightly later in your delivery, but write it out because you've got to get through everything. Mm-hmm. So those frameworks and constraints are massive. To me, if if companies want to learn from TED, it's not like, oh, tell a nice story. Because remember, the, the TED speaker's mandate is to pull an emotional heartstring. Mm. But you can watch your favorite TED talk ever and never do anything else. Like It's, it's actually a form of entertainment, most of them, sure. in many ways. A few of them change you. But that's not the case in a business presentation, and those are the ones that matter to you. So if you really want to learn from Ted, you need to put together a group of people who've done it, who are coaches, and you need to say, if you want to get onto the stage and present your marketing plan, you've got to deliver that thing 10 times to people until we're sure that this is the perfect, perfect presentation for presenting in 15 minutes on this stage. You know, I always say to people, when I'm asked, I spoke at that suits and sneakers thing, right? I I spoke for like half an hour and there was 4,000 people there. That means 2,000 hours of attention were paid to me. Nice. yeah,
0: Very cool. With regards to frameworks, I know that you've created your own frameworks. Can you
1: elaborate on that framework that you've created? Sure. The first thing is the understanding that we present this as a framework and we believe it can work for every presentation. I think it's important to understand that we're not saying this is the only framework that works. Sure. And there's four very, very simple steps. And I'll tell you what they are quickly and I'll break them down quickly. The step number one, we call it the give and tell because there's a soft bit at the beginning where you're kind of giving to the audience, hoping Mm. they take it. And then once you've earned that, there's the tell, which is you're telling them now. Step number one, you have to give your audience a reason to care. You've got to buy an audience's attention before you sell them anything, Mm. even an idea. Step number two, you've got to give them a reason to believe. There has to be a reason why, okay, so I care about something. Now, you've made me care, but why should I trust you? So, And by the way, not why should I trust you in general, why should I trust you specifically with regards to the message, you know, the problem you've just told me. Mm. Then step number three is tell them what they need to know. And step number four is tell them what they need to do, the mm. call to action, right? So first we buy their attention. We, we make them understand there's a problem. I always say you don't have to sell the features and benefits, right? Uh, that's what we set out to do. Yeah, oh, let's tell you about the features and benefits. Uh, no, you've got to sell – if I try to sell you the features and benefits of an ambulance, it wouldn't matter. You don't sell the ambulance. You sell the accident. If you can sell the accident, the ambulance sells itself, so job number one, we go up there and we sell the problem in such a way as we buy the audience's care, right? Um, the term we use is we say your audience, when you meet them, they have an empty gas tank. Mm. And then at the beginning, you're filling that tank. You're buying their attention, right? Creating an itch that they want scratched. And more importantly, you're creating a problem that they are now trying to solve. And then the rest of the presentation is giving them the bits in which they get to solve it in their head before yeah, you drop that's it. very good. Right? Then you give them a reason to believe. You know, it's amazing how often you'll see presentations. People will invite an agency to come and pitch, and they stand up and say, Hi, um, we are this company. This is our organogram, our BE structure, their thing. Like, nobody cares. Like, I don't care. However, if I tell you that uh, you have a massive presentation problem, let's say I've just illustrated the problem of the conference and the hours of attention and how important this your conference actually is and the true cost of your conference. And then I explained to you, all I have to say is, say, you know, we've run a presentation company for 20 years. We train TED speakers, and we've worked with most of South Africa's um, top CEOs. You know, that's enough. That's a, I don't need to go into any more credential. They're like, for the problem I framed, that's everything we need to do. Sure. Then tell them what they need to know. That's the hard and fast information. This is the breadcrumbs where you're giving them to help them get the punchline. They must try and guess the riddle at the same time that you – or a split second before you actually drop it, right? Because your audience wants to feel smart. If you give your audience a chance to feel smart, you've got them. And then finally, you've got to tell them, you know, what they need to do. So here's one of my biggest frustrations is people talk about things like the the hero's journey and tell a story. (laughs) And this is amazing. And they'll give you all of these narrative flows. They'll tell you, look, Star Wars, Harry Potter, the Hobbit, all of these things follow the hero's journey. But you don't – Finish watching Lord of the Rings and be like, that's it. And then steal your mom's wedding ring and go throw it into a mountain. <laughs> you don't finish, finish watching Snatch and then go and rob a diamond store. right? These narrative structures are great, but they're not enough. You, again, deliver a message to achieve a result. Mm. Uh, the result of a film and most storybooks is to entertain you. The result of a good presentation is to provoke you to action. One of my favorite examples is Inconvenient Truth. Paints this big story. It's
0: Al Gore, right? Yeah, yeah. Al
1: Gore. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. Everything's terrible. And you get to the point where then he comes through and he talks about his work and, you know, after he invented the internet and, you know, yeah, of course. what <laughs> he's done. Smart guy. Yeah. Smart oh. guy. That's it. And then he goes through all the work he's done, but then he paints a picture of everything that needs to be done. And you're sitting there and you're thinking, yo, there's nothing I can do. I can't contribute to this. And he says, here's what I need you to do. You've got to decide today to become part of the solution. It's very simple. I can't ask you to change everything. I can't ask you to just lobby your governments. But what I can ask you to do is just to make a choice. Next time you go to your supermarket, I'm asking you to do one thing. When you're looking at the light bulb, take the energy-saving one. That's it. right? So his call to action was easy. One of the mistakes, incidentally, people always make in a presentation is we ask we ask for the thing that we think we ultimately want. But don't ask for the thing in your presentation that is the first step to getting yeah, towards that. It's very good. And a guy sent me a message this morning. The advice I gave to him was, dude, just make sure when you do this, do not try sell your product. Try sell the appointment, right? Because getting somebody to take out their phone and schedule said, guys, if you if I've convinced you of anything, anything, mm. all I want is you to open your diary right now and schedule an hour for us to have a discussion. That's mm. it. Do you believe that what I've said to you warrants one hour of your time to have meaningful discourse? And if you think it does, then let's share that right now. Yeah. And the closer you can get them to do the thing, you know, even in your presentation, take out your phones now and send a message to your yeah. mom and tell her you love her. You, you can't tell them in the presentation to
0: bypass the entire process and get to the end thing. Yes. You've got to get to the first step. Right? The first thing.
1: And be intentional about that. And again, uh, make sure you ask them something. If you can, ask them to do something that they can do immediately. Yeah. Because when you it's walk off that stage, they're no eternal. longer your audience. They're somebody else's audience.
0: Sure. I love that, Rich. Very, very cool. So just to recap, it's reason to care, reason to believe, need to know, and need then to what do. to do, right? Need, or to, do. need to do. Tell okay. them what
1: they need to know. Tell them what they need to do.
0: Sure. Be overt. And I think what was really interesting is you touched upon it briefly in terms of just some of the, you know, you, you spoke about storytelling and the narratives and all that. You hear that all the time when you listen to people saying, hey, you know, when you, you, you deliver a message or deliver a, a talk, you've got to tell a story and, and so on. And I get the feeling there's a lot of preconceptions or misconceptions around public speaking. Can you potentially speak to some of the, the myths or you know, these, these misconceptions? Well,
1: let's start with that one straight off the bat, the tell a story one. Sure. We need to use stories as a way to draw your audience in. But we need to understand that the story itself is not the product. The way I, I generally explain to people is I think you may have met years ago my dog, my boxer, Murphy. Mm. And um, Murphy was highly obedient, but he wouldn't take medicine. I couldn't get that dog to take a pill. Luckily, I'd figured out this hack. And that was if I took the pill and I wrapped it in peanut butter, right? But what I, had, I couldn't even just give it to him because then he would lick it. I had to put him down, put him in a stay, put the peanut butter on the floor, and he would like start getting panicky, like, oh my God. Oh my. <laughs> and I <they'd> said, stay, <laughs> stay. And then I'd wait and I'd sit. And I look at him and say, "Take it," and he would go down there and he swallow it all up at it, and you could see it lapping away, and his tongue was going around. And then he'd look at me like, "Ah, oh, ah, oh, you got me. Ah, oh, you got me. Ah, <laughs> oh, see what you did there. That's not cool. Uh... Not cool, Richard." And here's the thing: is in my mind, we need to understand what the story is. The story is just the peanut butter, right? If I go to Murphy and try give him the pill, the pill is the information. If I go to Murphy and just give him the pill. Right, that's that's a the big slide with all the content, with all the information, with all the graphs, with everything. That's that's too bitter for them to swallow. That's uncomfortable and they don't want it and they, they reject it. Right? Your audience's attention rejects that kind of information. But equally, if I stand up and just tell them a nice story, that's just the peanut butter. It's easy, it's sweet, it gives you a quick burst of energy and then it's instantly forgettable. Mm. You need to understand it's the vehicle for the payload. Right. the peanut butter is the is the thing that's going to get that big thing through, but be very 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 aware and intentional about the fact that the story is not the it's just the delivery mechanism there's got to be something else there, so if you hear these things about tell the story and you're not thinking about uh, what pill am I trying to get them to swallow, you're failing yeah. So that's one of the myths, and it's not a myth. It's true that we must tell, we can use well, stories, but it's, it's a mistake. It's a slight, yeah, It's an it's oversimplification.
0: A, sure, it's an oversimplification. I think there's complexity in that, and understanding. I think in your framework, that fourth step, it's not just the story that's important. It's about the, you know, the action and the payload, as, right, as you said. exactly. Yeah.
1: Then one of the other ones for me is things like know your audience. You can't know your audience. You don't know what they're like and who they are. You can maybe research what's important to them from a structural point of view. But when people say that They say you know Guys know your audience You're speaking to bankers You know Just be And then they They stand up And they try to act like a banker Most of us Pretty crappy At being them mm. However I've checked Right I've done this test And I can categorically tell you I am 100% the best version of me in every single audience I've ever spoken (laughs) at. It's the only universal truth that I know to be true. And what I do know about audiences, the only one thing that I can tell you for sure is audiences have finely tuned authenticity detectors. And they will pick up if you're not being you very, very quickly, right? And even if you is different to them, they give you permission if they feel you're being genuine. I remember once I was speaking at this event in Guadalajara and it was these people from all over uh, the world and I was really nervous and I thought, sure, I don't know what their cultures are like. Is my humor going to work? Is this going to work? And I thought, well, job number one is to bring them to my world. So the first thing I turned around, I went up there and I said, um, you know, I'm a fellow entrepreneur and I give some credibility there and this was an entrepreneurial audience. And then I turned around and said, but um, I'm really, really sorry. Like as much as I want to be here today, I'm feeling quite devastated. And it was my son Callum's birthday and it was a really big gig and I spoke to him about it and it was the was only birthday I've ever missed. I said, can I ask you a massive favor? And I took out my phone and I said, can we sing happy birthday to my son? Because I'm here. So all of a sudden, this entire oh, audience man. starts singing happy birthday to Callum. Now, here's what happens. Then all of a sudden, I became like I'm an entrepreneur and I'm a dad. right? So now the tattooed, funny-haired, accented guy, like the, now that's a small difference. Because actually, on things that matter, now we're close. Then I asked him a question. I said to them, hey, guys, I just want to just check with you quickly. Has anybody seen the film The Hangover? And if, when you ask somebody that question, they smile. I'd, people, if you've seen the film, you smile. Because then you're remembering <laughs> things. And I said to you, well, and then I showed that photo of that Asian guy, you know the Asian guy, and the, he's just, like yeah, smiling at them. Yeah, yeah. And I said to them, nothing. I can tell you today in the next 45 minutes is going to be as offensive as when you saw that man's willy, And then they all <laughs> giggle and laugh. But now what I've done is I've framed them. that No longer are they comparing the edginess of my presentation to their expectation on what a corporate presentation should be like. They're now measuring the delivery of my presentation against the extreme of seeing that. So I've now brought them to my world. Now they, I no longer exist at their disparate world, which is a hundred different worlds. Yeah, it's like a made, multiverse. You've
0: made the connection, right?
1: I brought them to where I exist. So when an audience, when you can bring an audience to your space, right? When you can bring them to the place where you're able to be you, then you do well. Just so that I understand
0: you correctly, you're not saying don't know your audience, but it's, it's about understanding the context and making that connection with the audience in, in a different way. Yeah.
1: Don't ever try and change who you are because of who you think the audience is, is ultimately what I'm saying. Okay. I was speaking at an EO event and this guy stood up there and he said, guys, I'm so sorry, but I have brought up my script here today and I'll tell you why. Because the story that I'm about to tell you is so fundamentally important. It's so important to me that I get this right, that I don't want to miss a single word. I've prepared and been working and crafting this story, and I want to deliver it to you in such a way because I think that it has the potential to really, really change your life as it's changed mine. Nobody cared anymore. No, nobody was anymore that audience yeah. there. They were now the, his audience. Mm. They were. And you they know, made there. them,
0: despite the fact he, you know, knew the audience, but it's more about getting the audience to know.
1: Him. Right. Okay. And so brought them to there, bought their attention early, and then had full permission to be a person standing there nervously working from a script. Standing ovation, that talk for what it's Amazing. worth, Amazing. Right? That's such a great analogy. It's brilliant. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's it for me. It's just never change who you are. Always be the best version of you and bring your audience to where you can win. Bring the audience to your house and deliver from there.
0: Cool. Rich, I wanted to ask you if there's any kind of particular – hacks or resources or, or last little nuggets of advice that you can give our, our listeners.
1: So the first thing I want to say to you is do it when it doesn't matter so that you're great at it when it does. And I've kind of said that before, but present all the time. Just get comfortable with standing in public speaking. We created TalkDrawer at talkdrawer.com where we've created these small little presentations you can stand and deliver to your team, trying to make you comfortable in how you can deliver when you're doing that. So that's the first thing. Do not wait until the you know all the chips are stacked to to become good at this. The second thing I'll say is like have rituals. So I have the same music video I watch literally before every single time I go on stage. I have the same playlist that I listen to when I'm driving to the gig. I've got a system that I set up as a public speaker. I send a rider about where I need my my machine, why I want to use my own clicker, how and I do things, and it's because I figured out what is going to allow me to be good. Have rituals. It's like programming yourself. Programming to, yourself to get to, into the state. To get into, it. yeah, very cool. Yeah, so you've got to do those kind of things. Do not try be fancy with your slides. If you're thinking you're really really bad and you hate PowerPoint, don't try fix that with Prezi. Don't try to go to a more complicated engine and try and distract your audience from the fact that your delivery isn't great. Just get good at using the basics. But the most important thing, again, and it's just really 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 the more you do most things, the better at them you get. Rich,
0: thank you so much for being on the show. It's been an absolute honor and uh, and a thrill to have you here. And we look forward to celebrating more success in the future. Thanks, Fred. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Healthy Business Show. If you love this podcast, do let us know via social media. Tag at discovery underscore SA. Use the hashtag DSY healthy business and please do rate us on your favorite podcast platform. Whether it's Apple, Spotify or wherever you find your shows. You can also find more episodes on the Discovery website at discovery.co.za forward slash corporate forward slash podcasts.